So welcome to the first episode of the We Belong Here podcast of season three here at Stephen Commons. Uh, as always, we want to thank the Big Phony for the usage of their music in the intro and outros. We are recording this podcast on MLK Day, and our topic and our guests will engage around, you know, housing justice, uh, the importance of housing. Why is it? What does home mean to us? Uh, and particularly for the Black community here in the Seattle region. So many people know that Dr. Martin Luther King was a huge factor in the passage of voter access during the civil rights movement. And sidebar, uh, that is something that is under attack now and something that, you know, this country really has to refocus its attention on. But we really want to talk about something that a lot of people forget is the work of uh, Dr. King and Coretta King. And that's in shedding light on the housing injustices across the country while they lived in Chicago. And in fact, even though they worked on this uh, issue during the 1960s, mid-1960s, it wasn't until uh, Dr. King's untimely assassination in, in 68 that the U.S. finally passed the Fair Housing Act, which you know prevented the discriminatory practices that were so prevalent. Today, we still de- deal with the ramifications of generations of systemic housing discrimination right here in the Seattle region. The shadows of redlining and discriminatory lending practices bear their mark on suffocating the potential of homeownership and intergenerational wealth creation for uh, as many Black households that desire it. With that said, I'm really excited to have our three guests here. Um, We're going to talk about uh, housing. We're going to talk about belonging. We're going to talk about community. Um, It's going to be really amazing. And so without further ado, I'm going to have the three guests introduce themselves in a couple of sentences. So, uh, Andrea, why don't you go first? Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here today. Um, I'm Andrea Capane-Sanderson. I'm a mother. Um, I have a 28-year-old and a 7-year-old. I'm a wife, sister, and I like to say I'm a proud descendant of my warrior ancestors. And I'm grateful to be working for an organization called Bird Bar Place that was created in the 1960s by our Black community to solve issues of racism and poverty And I've been working in social justice for over 20 years. Um, It's been very much a labor of love. Um, I inherited this love from my grandmother who raised my brother and I. My family and I are descendants of slaves brought to the Caribbean during the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, We grew up in British Guyana, South America until we immigrated to this country when I was 12 years old. I'll be 48 this year and very much grounded in my destiny to aid in the liberation of my black people. Thank you, Andrea. Uh, Michelle, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Glad to be here, Frank. And how am I supposed to follow that introduction? (laughs) But but to say that uh, I, too, am following in the footsteps of my ancestors, my warrior ancestors, and Andrea, and I use that um, all the time, that we are here to be good ancestors. And in in that... um, I have the privilege of leading the Urban League of Metropolitan Seattle, a 91-year-old civil rights organization committed to um, building equity and wealth uh, for the Black community right here in Seattle. And in addition to that, in in alignment of our ancestors, Andrea, myself, and two other phenomenal women uh, launched the Black Future Co-op Fund in 2020 to connect resources across the state to support um, black Washingtonians and honored to be here with you. Great to have you both. And uh, last, last but not least, uh, Daryl, why don't you tell us about yourself? 
thank you so much, uh, Frank, for the invitation. And, and what a what a, a treasure and honor to, to be here in the company of uh, Michelle Merriweather and Andrea Copen sanderson um, two women I admire for their brilliance and passion so very much. Um, I am Daryl Smith. I'm uh, pleased to be here. I hail from Englewood, New Jersey, back east, where I grew up in a family of jazz musicians. Uh, that creativity um, and brilliance in my family um, really manifested itself in several ways. My my grandfather, Earl, um, an incredible man, uh, was for my hometown, the numbers runner. He was the guy that everybody came to see with their dollars balled up. And even as a kid, I remember adults asking me to pick the number for me, boy. And and that that brilliance and those workarounds um, in my family were one of the the few ways that we were able to be entrepreneurs in the, the town where I grew up. And I'll tell more about that. But that that really led to um, that determination to get things done and to prosper for one's family and community. And I find myself uh, out here in the Seattle, Washington area now. I moved here oh, some 25 years ago to work in the professional theater as an actor. Uh, that was my lane in creativity for my family. But these days, I serve as the executive director of Homesite. We are a 31-year-old community development corporation, a place-based community development corp. And we're really um, at the apex and our founding in the Central District in Seattle was really all around the idea of helping the African-American community create generational wealth through home ownership. That is a reason for our existence. And so this is a, a quite an honor and the real coming together for me of of, of aligning that passion around helping families achieve a dream that many thought that they would not have access to. So Homesite has a, a tremendously long history and track record as a home builder, as a mortgage lender for low and moderate income families, uh, particularly families of color, and for being a place-based partner in community and helping community deepen roots in the places we'd like to remain or come home to. Mm. You all are so good at your intros. This is really um, some of the best intros we've heard on the podcast so far. And Daryl, I had no idea you were a, a Jersey boy, as I am too. And my brother actually lives in Engle Englewood now. Oh, wow. Um, and I grew up in Lynnhurst and Livingston, New Jersey. Oh, New Jersey. I know Lynnhurst. We used to play all in baseball, all the basketball too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah this, this is a – I think we probably got here around the same time. I moved to Seattle in 96. Yeah, yeah. But small world and – um. You know, if I had a magic wand and had a, you know, wave it to say, who are the best guests to have around this topic in the Seattle region? I think I would probably still get the same exact result. And it would be the three of you. I'm sure there's other folks who are as equally well-versed and well-experienced in the work, but um, it's just great having this trio here. And so before we delve into the systemic issues that, you know, play communities today, I wanted to have each of our guests, you know, and we always share stories about belonging in our podcast. And we want to get to know each other. We want to tell our own stories. So I'd love our guests, uh, for our guests to tell their own personal story around home ownership. You know, if they own, what was the, what was that like? What does it mean to them? And if they don't own, what is it like to try to get your own house? And what are the things that stand in your way? And so in the same order that we've had our guests go uh, before, I'd love for you all to just talk about the meaning of home and the importance of it. So, Andrew, why don't you go first? Yeah, thank you. I, I got to go back to your prior comment, Frank, about the best guests possible for this topic. And I stand on the shoulders of Michelle and Daryl, who've been in this work. Um, you know, Bird Bar Place does serve a large segment of our Black population in Seattle. 
and we do rental assistance and we meet people's immediate needs. But really, when we think about that next level up, um, when we think about earning wealth, saving, protecting our wealth and homeownerships being one of those levers, I've looked to the Daryls and the Michelles of the world. So I just want to say that um, home means to me um, stability, right? It means predictability. I, I, and I come from that from two different perspectives. I am a homeowner now. Um, I've been a homeowner for eight years and I became a homeowner at 40. Um, and it's the longest I've lived anywhere, quite frankly, because before that, my family and I were perpetual renters. Uh, we suffered from what many black families suffered from, which was economic segregation, um, lack of economic mobility, lack of information and knowledge around home ownership. And I experienced that too at Bird Bar Place where, you know, we're a 58 year organization and we just um, got our property. We just became owners of that property, just got the deed to that property um, at the end of, of 2020. And what it means for me, both professionally and personally, is that I now get to put roots down, right? And I now get to deepen those roots and have it be a resource, whether it's my home for my personal community, my family. Now family gatherings happen at my house, which is so cool versus, you know, trying to stuff everyone in a five to 900 square foot apartment um, for holidays and other special gatherings. Now people meet at my house. We can converge at my home. We can build memories here. Um, this is a resource, right? Obviously a financial resource also for my family, my children. And so this creates a lot of hope and possibility for me. Um, it also means a sense of belonging. I love that the topic is around belonging because now I have a place that I get to have autonomy in, um, that I get to be in my likeness that also carries forward my traditions to my children, to their children. And I say that too in the workspace, Burbard Place as a black community owning our building. And now we have the opportunity to renovate that building and to preserve it. We get to carry forward our traditions and we have predictability because we know we're going to be there. And we know that we want to stay there as a community. We know we want to stay here in my home as a family. So it offers on so many levels, um, psychological safety, financial security, um, but also hope and possibility for others who are looking to um, dream and to take those actions towards and take opportunities towards home ownership. Mm. Thank you for sharing, Andrew. I love the, the thing you said about autonomy and like having a space of autonomy. Like this is, this is your place, this is your kingdom. And to build the memories of family there is so uh, important and so cool. And so I really uh, resonated and vibe with that, uh, that saying, uh, that part. So yeah, thank you for sharing. Mm -hmm. uh, Michelle, yeah, Michelle, jump in there. Tell us a little bit about what home means to you. Absolutely. I, I share the same sentiments, of course. I mean, this is going to happen every with every question, by the way. Every question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so maybe I should stop saying that. Um, but I am a renter. Um, but I will say that I come from, um, I'm blessed to come from a line, a lineage of home ownership. My grandmother, both of my grandmothers, both owned their own homes. My um, my mother's mother um, moved from Mobile, Alabama, when she decided to to leave my grandfather and move to California with her three babies. She bought her own house in um, 1973 by herself as a single um, black woman in Riverside, California, and was so proud of the fact that she 
paid that house off before the day she died um, uh, on her own without help from anyone by cleaning other people's houses and hotels and being a, a nurse's aide and many other jobs. And my father's mother um, cleaned other people's houses and baked as her side hustle um, to pay off her mortgage uh, when her husband passed away suddenly at 61. Um, so, you know, I come from a long line and then both my parents uh, stayed together until the day my father passed away and not uh, had the honor of not only owning one home, but two, the house I grew up in and the house they live in now. Um, and so I think for me, uh, while yes, I would absolutely and actually am on the path of purchasing my first home at 44 years old, uh, the challenge for me that stood in my way is student loan debt. I had uh, a tremendous amount of student loan debt, which is uh, a, a known story, especially among um, Black folks who choose to go to college. Um, my family is a straight middle class family and, you know, couldn't afford to just write a check to pay uh, my tuition uh, for the school that I chose to go to. So I incurred student loan debt, uh, which I do not regret, regret other than the fact that I had to pay it off. And I graduated from college in uh, 2000. And I just finished paying that uh, uh, that loan off, um, and and now I'm prepared to to walk down the path of homeownership, uh, for which I'm grateful for. And you know, from and I would say for me, it is yes, um, building upon that legacy of ownership uh, and generational ownership. A place to build a family and create memories and stability, uh, right? And uh, a place so you can always point to and know where home is. Like for me, I I can point to my grandmother's house in Mobile, Alabama, in Pritchard, Alabama, and know that that's home. Or Moore Park, California, and know that that's home. And what a legacy to live. We don't as 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 a community, we unfortunately don't have a lot of things that we can pass on generationally because a lot of them were stolen from us, quite frankly. But the legacy that I have in my family of an education, of home ownership, uh, and uh, and family togetherness and resiliency is is my hope to pass on to the future. So, uh, and, and, and home ownership is a part of that. You know, I love Michelle's point about student loans being a barrier because I remember talking with our bankers about my financial history and my financial knowledge and even diversity of, 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 of finances. And I'd never had a mortgage, don't know what an amortization schedule was. Um, and so the most sophisticated loan that I've had in my lifetime before my mortgage was a student loan. And that was also a barrier for me, as it is for many families, many middle-class families, many Black families. And so when you don't have access to different and sophisticated types of loan products, that is also used against you in terms of your lack of experience with a loan when it comes to determining should you get, you know, right. should one give you a loan? Yeah, absolutely. The, the the way that system is barring people from accessing the complexities of loans and then that's used against you later on. And it's just, you know, no one, no one has ever taught me. I don't know. I don't uh, just really quickly. I don't own either. Um, I'm 48. We'll be 49 next month. Uh, my parents, when they immigrated, they did buy one house, small one, starter home, and then they sold it 
and bought a second house. Um, but then, you know, my parents, once my parents divorced, my mom uh, got rid of the house and, you know, moved on into an apartment of her own. And definitely debt for me has been a big issue, student debt, uh, other, you know, consumer debt as well. But yeah, I, one thing that I do want to say also is like, Michelle, you talking about how your grandparents, you know, had their homes, the, how they worked um, to, to have it. Also, the way the economy worked back then was so different than the so way it is now. So different. I was just about right? to say that. My, yeah, my yeah. parents' house in, in 1973, 75, was $30,000. Mm. Uh, and, you know, just the affordability. And I make a decent salary. Um, but, you know, they, one, had a, a two-income home, which both of their income, I make more than both of their first, their starting incomes combined now. And I still can't afford uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, can barely afford to pay the mortgages of the home prices that are now. Let me stop. It's Daryl's turn. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I I could just sit here and listen. You know, so much of of, of what what you both have, all three of you have said, have just uh, just sparked my imagination. I, I share so many of these these same stories. You know, I'll I'm, I'll, I'm going to top all three of you and say I'll be sixty in June, and I am still paying student loans. I went to graduate school, private graduate school as well, acting conservatory, very expensive. And similar story, my parents, we were a straight up middle-class family in New Jersey. They couldn't afford to send me to college. So I took out a lot of student loan, a lot of student loan debt. And, you know, what was missing and what we try to do at Homesite is we provide, you know, financial homebuyer education. I didn't have any of that. So I took all kinds of loans, not really understanding them. And I didn't really understand what capitalization of interest meant when I kept deferring my student loans. And as a result, I still owe a pile of cash. So I am a homeowner. Um, as I mentioned, I came to Seattle working in the creative economy here as an actor. And somehow or another, we found um, an African-American loaner officer who kind of understood the struggle my wife and I were trying to put together in terms of our income. And we were able to afford on a very small FHA mortgage with a tiny amount of savings we had and a gift from parents, both sides. We were able to get a little fixer in Southeast Seattle. Um, We stayed there for about seven years, eventually sold that little home to a family much like ours, that little young child. And we own a second home now or uh, this single home uh, that's a little larger that was able to be the place where my daughter grew up. And for me, you know, what home means is, is, as Andrea mentioned, that sense of rootedness, that sense of community and that stability that you talked about, uh, Michelle, which is so incredibly important. I can remember vividly 274 Tejan Avenue in Englewood. I'll never forget that home because that's, that's where Nana and Pop Pop's house was. We went there every Sunday. My cousins, who now live back east in Brooklyn and D.C., everybody met there. It was always the place where you went, and there were generations there telling jokes and sipping sweet tea and having mac and cheese, and that, you know, the Sunday morning breakfast, and always in the basement, my uncles practicing drums with world-famous jazz musicians popping in. 274 Tijin was community. That's what I grew up with. And so trying to have a sense of recreating that here in the Pacific Northwest is is really important. My family is a little smaller than the family I grew up in and around in in New Jersey, but the feeling is much the same. And when I reflect on my own family's history of how hard it was to become a homeowner, how incredibly important that was, um, it really means something to me on my mom's side. My mom uh, had a marriage before my father, 
one that didn't end well. And when she divorced that man who abused her, he stopped paying the mortgage in the little house they owned. And my mother lost the house. It went to a sheriff's sale. And the reason why my mother became a homeowner is because the man she had worked for at the Farber Pen Company in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey, took a liking to my mom's intellect, went to the sheriff's sale, purchased the home, called the bank in Englewood, the bank where I grew up sending my little pennies, convinced that bank manager to give my mother a mortgage. And that's how my mom became a homeowner, because someone had to do a workaround and understand that this brilliant black woman was going through hardship and provided partnership and leadership in helping her to regain and own her home. That home was sold and my parents bought the home that I grew up in, but it would have never happened except for my mom's employer. It should not be that hard to become a homeowner in America. And guess what? In large measure, it still can be today for a lot of folks in the black community. This is the work that, that our three organizations really try to do, that education piece, that sense of belonging, that sense of community, offering loan products as my organization does that are specifically tailored to help individuals not get into bad mortgages, but mortgages that are actually right-sized and with significant down payment assistance that are silent seconds, so no payment is due for 30 years. So you can grow into and stabilize your housing costs. I'm getting technical here, but to me, it does tie together from the standpoint that what we're talking about here and what feels so personal to me where my work comes together with my personal values is it was incredibly hard for my family. One side, my grandfather was the numbers runner, entrepreneur. That's how he was able to get enough cash to buy to buy the home, 274 Tijan Avenue. The other side, my mom, she had to have a benevolent and wonderful employer who understood her brilliance and was there to provide help when she needed it the most. It should not be that hard. And so when I think about being a homeowner now, that sense of stability and belonging, a place where my daughter grew up and this will always be home to her, it really matters to me. And so it really drives me in the work I do today. Hmm. Yeah, I, that's it's the, something that you said is it should not be this hard. And, you know, the fact that it sounds like a, a story you know, a fairy tale, right? Employer jumps in, benevolent employer jumps in and helps out, talks to the, buys the house from the sheriff's, calls the bank, you know, that just, that even for you, Daryl, you said that your house, that you got a black home, uh, a bank loan officer, and that kind of, that really understood, you know, internally, like the, the system and how that it doesn't benefit um, folks of color. So, yeah, it's just, you know, it's crazy. Like, Many of us, if you own, you, you you didn't own right after college. You know, you didn't get a giant check from your parents or inheritance. We didn't inherit houses, right? Um, many of us are in our 40s uh, beyond that. And then just it took so long and it's taking so long to own a house. And, of course, we're in the Seattle region, which makes it even tougher. Uh, obviously, I am now in Seoul um, and, and come back to Seattle. But uh I actually came across a little bit of money from my grandfather's. Uh, uh, he had a building that we sold. He passed away like 10 years ago. And so I used that to pay off debt and I have a little bit left. And I think I can save to maybe put a down payment on something. But, you know, that won't be until probably in my early 50s that I'll be able to do that. You know, but I do still want to own a home. 
And I know what it meant for me as a kid growing up in our, my parents' home. I love the fact that we all know the importance of home. I don't love the fact that it takes so much for folks to own their own homes and understand the, the complexity and all the things that are you know structurally set aside to prevent that really, right? And before I go on, I would love to, if there's anyone wants to like comment on anyone else's response to you, I would love to save time for that. I love Daryl's point about, um, well, at least the story about the person who vouched for his mother, right? I think it's that vouching and I underline that is what, and it's probably feeds into your, um, our next conversation is what's going to do it for our community, vouching for us socially, vouching for us through capital, um, to, to legitimize us and to legitimize our worth. And so I, I don't take that word vouching um, lightly any longer, given where things are going in our society and this really pervasive anti-Blackness that exists. Yeah, the, the <clears throat> I'm, I'm, my mom, <laughs> here's the really crazy thing. My mom told me the story of how she regained her home just this past year because we were in my mom's house and just reflecting on the fact that when my grandmother died, my grandmother came from Greenland, South Carolina, where my mother was born. That's where the, the family side of my mom's family is from. And, you know, we have this plat map. It's one of the last documents we found on my grandmother's things. I had it framed for my mom's 80th birthday. My mom's 90, by the way, here in Seward Park in Seattle. And it was a plat map of almost a city block in Greenland, South Carolina, with all these penciled family names in it, all owned by the matriarch of my family, my mother's grandmother, who my mother is named for, Josie Stewart. And at some point, we lost that property. It was either stolen or sold under value or something happened. I did a title search and they can't go back as far as like 1967. They can't go beyond that. So we have this blank missing history in our family of what happened to all that property that we owned that was doled out to family members. Somehow or another between, you know, then and my 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 Mother's grandmother came into ownership in 1923, a black woman, 1923, owning almost 10 contiguous city lots in Greenwood. But somehow that that wealth didn't transfer up through the generation. So by the time it got to me going to college, like Michelle, you know, I had to, you know, get on the student loan, you know, wagon to, to make it all happen. So that that's one of those drivers. And and from my mother having that benevolent employer who understood her and said, you know, you are worth this. You should not have to go through this hardship really meant something. But I think I think going to where I think your next question is going to take us, Frank, is that it shouldn't take that. The recognition of brilliance and hard work and being deserving of this should should come without any kind of prerequisite, in other words. Mm-hmm. And I think in, in large measure that's that's what we're trying to, to sort of break down here at a, at a systems level. Let's let's make these barriers that exist, and some of them are still reverberations of redlining and, and a pretty bad racist past. How do we how do we deal with the, the things today that are maybe not as visible, but are still really an effect on on keeping people from from getting what they deserve? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The that whole idea of like why does it. Why does someone in the black community have to be exceptional to deserve a loan when so many people in the the majority are not exceptional and aren't even thought about? No one needs to vouch for them, right? It's just the way things are set. And also what you said, Daryl, about your uh, your matriarch of the family owning all this land. It reminds me that, you know, the the 
as we look for justice, it's never a finish line. Like we never can get to the point and be like, ah, now we can rest. Because even back then when the matriarch of the family owned all those blocks, like that's the building block of intergenerational wealth. But the way the system carves away at it and takes away from us and you, the, the forces of like gentrification nowadays, right? And forces families to sell the homes that they built. Like it's never something that you can rest on. And we see that with voters, voting rights, you know, on MLK Day, the Voting Rights Act passed and it was amazing. And then all these states started chipping away at it, where now that, you know, it's really eroded a lot of those rights in, in a really awful way. And so it's something that we have to keep our eye on. But how do we create the system that doesn't do that, right? How do we create the system that actually sustainably benefits and supports all of us together in like the right of justice and, and, and access? Uh, so with that said, you know, we're going to talk about, you know, the three of our guests are working with Civic Commons um, on a project, just like, you know, we're working on this idea of like, how do we build black homeownership in the region, you know? And so that's something that their own organizations, as they said, have been working on. And I want to talk about the why. Why is this important for you to do this work? I, I feel so um, very strongly about this work that we're engaging in. And we're really at the at the front end of, of, of a process to try to figure out, you know, what what is the landscape and, and what are those barriers? How do we, we identify them? And, and let's set some goals for ourselves and try to, you know, come up with a shared sense of priorities and strategies to uh, to break down barriers and to to really meet some goals in terms of black home ownership in the Puget Sound region. And I think, you know, when I when I step back a little bit, you know, you get to that, oh, why do this? Why why is this important? And I think, you know, my my wife works in education. And, you know, if, if you go back to that that adage about, well, in a classroom, if you have English language learners, if if the instructor can make sure that those learners do really well this magical thing happens. Well, the entire class does a lot better, right? So don't leave them out. And there's side benefit for everybody. Well, I, th- I kind of feel like if we can figure this out for the African-American, the black community, there are side benefits for all of us, right? So in a sense, if you can help those that are really having the largest gap in the racial wealth gap, in many other metrics and measures that talk about about health, um, you start to close the gap for a lot of other folks as well. So I think I think that's our driver. That's our why. When people say, "Well, why is this important?" I think mean, how we get there is going to take a lot of collective will and thinking, and a lot of agreement widely. Um, in a very, it's not a monolithic community, but we need to be able to have the 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 ability to reach out and have conversation, and then figure out the plan and march toward it. My own you know, kind of personal professional senses, we're going to have to, we're going to have to, you know, go after a few sacred cows. We're going to have to go after uh, some, some areas that have been deemed untouchable, if you will. We're going to need to talk about zoning. And what about that? We're going to have to really talk about lending practices and credit scoring and valuation. These are areas that, you know, for years you've been, oh, we can't mess with that. You know, there's fair housing laws and all these. We're going to have to have those conversations because if we want to really make a difference here that does have benefits for the wider community, then we're going to have to talk about these sort of widely held assumptions that, oh, you can't do that because this. Um, and I think the group that that has come together so far to work and, and think about this, uh, we are of the same mindset that, you know, this is so incredibly important. We're at such a moment in the country's history that 
we might need to break a little China here to really get to the, the type of future we really want to have. Definitely, definitely. And I think uh, in that, I, I appreciate that there's strength in numbers, that we're not doing this alone, that we're doing this collectively with the three of us and a lot of other great individuals and organizations that are are, are intentionally thinking about um, what the pathway looks like and what uh, you know the the perceived finish line could look like, uh, and and for us it's generational wealth and and building um, stability for Black families. And I I think about uh, Edwin Pratt who was um, who was leading the Urban League in the uh, of Seattle in the seventies, who um, intentionally moved his family out of of the central district that was red line for black folks uh, to shoreline to integrate shoreline and was intentional about that and sharing his story and, um, you know, trying to get others to do the same and work, you know, working with uh, um, banks and, and lenders and um, agents and realtors and all of that to change practices. And, we're continuing that legacy now. And I, I'm so grateful for Linda Taylor, who leads our housing work and has been for the last 25 years and the knowledge that she has uh, in, in investing in, in the folks that come through our doors and give, providing them the education and the tools needed to be ready uh, to meet, you know, uh, folks like uh, Daryl and his team um, to be prepared to, to walk that pathway. Um, but it's just, we, we have, you know, we've been doing this for, for a long time, the Urban League, and just the, the, the amount of people that we have been able to support, although I'm proud of every single one that has been able to become homeowners, it just hasn't been enough. It hasn't been enough, uh, period. And, you know, we can, we can blame, yes, we have to change lending practices. We have, you know, we can blame systems, which we have certainly can and there's blame there but we have to make sure that we're we're you know opening the door of education and resource for as many black families and be intentional about it uh and i think in this moment where all of us are coming together with intentionality and focus that we'll be able to change uh the outcomes and stories for so many and hopefully change the generation to where um you know, work that we are doing it won't be needed, right? Um, and this and and this type of conversation and stories won't be necessary. Uh, but we have to be intentional about it. And, and and you know, while we say we're helping one family at a time, you know, since we opened our doors uh, 91 years ago, it's time to to open the floodgates and and prepare uh, every single black family for home ownership and and not uh, just to be prepared to buy, but be prepared to maintain and sustain that home um, and build community and family and and know what to do if somebody comes and knocks on your door and offers you um, a check for your house because, you know, they know that if a white family moves into that house, they'll be worth $500,000 more you know, and how to uh, how to preserve and build wealth for your family. Um, 
so we, you know, we have work to do. Uh, and, and I will say individually, again, we've been doing that work and sometimes collectively, but right now in this moment, we're all locked, you know, all of us are locked arms, sharing the same mind and moving uh, together. And I think, uh, yeah, you know, we might, we will um, force some changes, but the benefits of that uh, is, is, is going to be beautiful. Yeah, I love that, Michelle, you raised um, you raised up Edwin T. Pratt because he's one of the founding members of Bird Bar Place, right? Just how our organizations are so intertwined yeah. back then and we still are today. Um, yeah, to Daryl's point, we're going to have to break some China. Mm-hmm. I think about Mercer Baradaran's book, The Color of Money, right? Where she's a scholar, she's yes, a lawyer. Yes. She details the financial institution's uh, responsibility in the economic segregation of black people in this country from its inception, their inception of those financial institutions to the the financial industry through the Obama years and its contribution to the great wealth divide that we see today. Um, And so why now? Why now is because the wealth divide is getting ever so um, larger, right? Back in 2015, it was chronicled that it would take 228 years for the average black family to catch up to the wealth of the average white family. Um, and that's, that's nine generations. And it just continues to deepen. We know that home ownership is one of the levers towards building wealth, um, towards accumulating wealth, towards financial stability. And so, yeah, we've gotten some partners together who have a strong desire. And we're talking up, up and down the the I-5 corridor. So we're talking South Seattle, South King County, North Pierce County, where a majority of our Black community lives. And anyone who wants to own a home, we will be opening up opportunities, but we can't do it alone, right? We're building, we're building a team of people from multiple sectors. And that's why this is so unique right now is that we have government coming together with private enterprise, coming together with grassroots individuals, with our nonprofit organizations, who are, who are leveraging our experiences, our strong desires, our capacities, our capabilities to ensure that we provide real opportunities for any Black person in the Puget Sound region to own a home, that it's there. Yeah, that, that's, I, I just have to jump in for a quick second to say, you know, that's so well said, Andrea. And we have to, we have to keep in mind always that what got us here, the system is working exactly as it was designed, right? So, Michelle, you you said a word that really sticks with me always, which is intentional. We have to be intentional about this because the system performed intentionally. The harm that was done was not by accident. Okay, It was not done by accident. So we have to go with equal fervor to correct history, to break a little bit of China, maybe a lot of China here and there, to create those opportunities for our families up and down the I-5 corridor, for opportunity in terms of home ownership, which, you know, outside of the stock market, and I don't really mess with that very much except for a small retirement account. It is one of the levers that most American families create their generational wealth. Um, that is by and large what folks do. And so that has been systematically denied. Um, people have gotten into bad mortgages. I'm talking about that in a minute. So we have to find ways of creating opportunity. And it's, it's not just you know, lending programs that my organization does, it's, it's supply, it's, it's looking at a lot of the levers and the systems 
that that have gotten in the way. And that's that's really what this this group is trying to do coming together. Hmm. Daryl, there's something that you said before that <clears throat> if we can figure this out for the African American black community, there are side benefits for everyone else. And I I love what you said there because a lot of people there's a zero sum mentality zero sum mentality that a lot of people have that if we focus too much on one group, that means that it takes away from all the other groups. And that's only if you keep the pie right so small. And if everyone's fighting for a slice, of course, yeah, sure. If I get a bigger slice, that means someone else gets a smaller slice. But that pie changes and that pie can grow. And I think what is lost on a lot of people, especially people in the majority, is that you know, the 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 life that they lead, you know, I'm sure is not always easy, but the fear of losing their access to the life that they have should not be the reason why they push against, you know, supporting movements like this. In fact, it should be the reason that they do support it because their life, even as good as it might be, it could be even better. Right. And and we can transform the way we all live. Um, But there's this fear of like, just not letting go what you have, but the fact that the pie can be bigger and we can only do that if we create this mindset and this narrative shift where we know that the things that benefit me will benefit others. Right. And if someone in my community is harmed, that actually harms me and not sequester ourselves from each other in terms of, you know, joy and pain. Um, and that's just something that I know the, the stuff that we're doing with Civic Commons around belonging and shared prosperity is really that's the mix. Right. We need to find a way to do the things that are policies and systems that prevent damage and harm. But we also have to play offense. Right. And the offense being how do we connect our humanity to the humanity of others? In this region, how do we tell our stories that connect to the stories of others and build that web that can be a social fabric that really allows us to build the soil that this stuff can be built on? Pun. And so I really appreciate this conversation so far. You know, Frank, we know through, I can speak for myself, lived experiences and the data shows in every pillar of well being that Native Americans. And Native-born Black people in this country are doing the worst. And we're talking the legal system, education, civic engagement, right? economic security, health equity. And if we solve for those, um, if we solve for these two groups, it will be the tide that raises all boats. I firmly believe that. We all do better when we all do better. When we all do better. Yeah, absolutely. There's a great... uh, partner of ours at Civic Commons, Cesar McDowell, who works out of MIT. Um, and he has this thing called uh, designing from the margins, right? It's like the idea of like human-centered design, but not designing for like the majority, which seems like the most efficient. It, but it's like he uses the analogy, like if you actually take the tent and you spread it wide to cover the margins first, you actually create a stronger tent. It's more stable. It, and But the fact is, if you cover people at the edges, you actually cover the middle as well. Right. And if you just only cover the middle, then you lose people. And so I love that analogy. I think about that a lot. But for sure, just, we're ex- exactly right. And it's great that we have this vision and this idea. Uh, how do we get other people to to buy into it is something that I think a lot about. I, I will just say in thinking about your analogy of building the tent, if you if if you want to think about how you get others to come along, you think about if you do not secure the outside of that tent, the center of the tent is going to fall. Right. Mm. <laughs> it might be fall. I think we're fall. seeing it fall now. We're mm-hmm. seeing it fall, and it fell in 2008. If you don't secure that the parameter, 
if you don't build a, on a solid foundation, it's going to fall. So, you know, if, if fear is your motivator, think about the center caving in again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, COVID showed us that. Yeah. I mean, some of our programs, our social service programs, welfare programs were under attack for decades, especially the cuts we saw policy-wise and funding-wise during the 08 recession. And then the system was so weakened by people not supporting it that when it came time for a lot of our middle-class families who needed those services to pull from it, it just wasn't there. We had 600,000 households who were living at or below the poverty line before COVID. And after COVID, that doubled. That's 1.2 million families. And we're talking about 2.5 people per household in Washington state that fell through the cracks, right? And needed food and needed shelter and needed immediate services who lost their jobs. And so, yes, when you think about designing for the margins, I think that was the greatest example in our lifetime of how, it, why it's important. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Even the great progressive acts, right. You know, like the, the building of like home mortgages and federally funded home mortgages, the, the, the GI bill that only benefited certain people. And the fact that, you know, you build such an amazing social progressive program and you see the benefits for the people that it benefited, right. This is generational wealth, education, all these levers that help access, you know, this, uh, ability to have a life for yourself and for your children and grandchildren was not factored in for everyone. And that has cratered it. Right. Right. And that just, it's just, you can't leave everyone out. You have to, you have to include everyone in these solutions for it to be sustainable. Cause if it, if you don't, as we see now, it, it is not sustainable. All these programs. Oh, well, I, uh, I appreciate this conversation so far. Um, and what I'm going to ask you all to do is also just talk a little bit about, you know, what the work you're doing now, if you're working on a passion project side hustle, I would love to hear about it. You know, we can amplify it. We can augment it. We can spread it out and let people know. Um, but yeah. So uh, Michelle, why don't you go first? Then we'll have Andrea and Daryl finish off. Absolutely. Um, the urban league is certainly has been uh, with the help of Linda Taylor, who leads our housing work is uh, continuously preparing uh, first-time home buyers through a HUD certified class the third Saturday of every month. Uh, you can come and take a, a class and um, potentially get a down payment uh, assistance support and just the knowledge of, of how to, the process, what to be ready for, what to be prepared for uh, is is invaluable. So I encourage everybody to do that. Uh, and then um, I'll let Andrea share what the Black Future Co-op Fund is working on. I think that that is wildly important. But I will also say that um, because uh, this is all tied together, uh, working with the National Ur- Urban League to um, encourage our Senate to pass the John Lewis, Lewis Voting Rights Act. Uh, the first vote is tomorrow. So call your your sen- senators and tell them to hurry up and pass it because, you know, time is slipping and we don't have any more. And we need every individual to have the right to vote and vote safely. Here, here to that. I mean, yes, yes. yes. The begging question here on MLK Day is how far have we come? And we have come a long way. We really have. 
we but there's been slow movement right on our behalf and and we've we've got a lot more um distance to make up for so please do support that bill um michelle referenced the what we're doing is 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 the black well-being and beyond report which was initially published in 2015 and it was a partnership with the urban league um with the african-american leadership forum and bird bar place and the the emphasis there was there was no one in our state gathering data on us black people um, who looked like us, who had our lived experiences. We had others telling our stories, um, telling our narratives and their likeness. And so it didn't serve our community to have narratives that were of a deficit perspective. So we took command and control of that and started gathering our data qualitatively and quantitatively. And so we're doing a re-up of that study that was published in 2015. We, this past summer, were busy, the Urban League, um, both of Metropolitan Seattle and Tacoma, um, and Bird Bar Place and several other Black organizations across the state of Washington uh, gathered data, whether it was online, through online surveys. We gathered data through one-on-one interviews, through focus groups, to hear from our community. And then now we're also gathering um, a complement to that, which is our quantitative, our stats. And we will be able to put that data together and we're going to push it out to community to get our community's reaction right before we begin writing the report. So stay tuned for some sort of community event that the Black Future Co-op Fund will be convening, whether it's May or June, where we're going to share this data with our community. And we're talking the entire state of Washington, because we know even though majority of us are on the eastern side of the mountains, there are a lot of us in rural counties, coastal counties. We want to catch everyone all across the state because this is about us, for us. We're fubuing it, right? And so what's exciting is that we have data gathered. Um, we feel pretty certain um, that the utility of collecting this data was, was all, also able to connect our communities from across the state. So we had folks in Kitsap County connecting with folks in Spokane County, connecting with folks in Vancouver County and King County. So it wasn't just centered in um, uh, King County, where a lot of times we hear from our Black communities, always gets the most play. But we were also able to network people across the state. And that was the benefit of this. But most importantly, this report will be published um, later this year. Uh, people can use it from a grassroots perspective, from our institutional perspective, even from a policymaking perspective. And this is our, our data. This is about our lived experiences. This is our story. Um, some of the data is heartbreaking. Because one of the things you'll see is that we still continue to hold the 10 lowest paid jobs in Washington state. You'll continue to see that our life expectancy is far behind our white counterparts and so on and so forth. But again, what's valuable is that we are in the driver's seat of telling our story. It's amazing work. Thank you both for your your leadership on that. I'm looking forward to that. Pardon me. You know, I'm thinking a little bit about what I can offer here and and they're, they're, there's so much that I'm I'm passionate about and excited about, and I'll, I'll mention a couple things that Homesite is is working on right now. We have we have several different down payment assistance funds that are mission driven and products loan products that are mission driven. We're a, what's called a CDFI Community Development Financial Institution. We kind of look like a bank if you didn't you know delve in a little bit, but we're not a bank, so we can do things the banks can't do. So, for example. We have a down payment assistance fund called the Social Justice Down Payment Assistance Fund. It can be used anywhere in the state of Washington. It's up to $10,000, and it's for BIPOC individuals and families specifically. Another fund we just started, launched it last November, 
name for Washington State legislator Sam Smith, who helped pass the open housing law for Washington State and a mirror law here in the city of Seattle. The Sam Smith High Neighbor Fund is up to $12,000 down payment assistance for African-American community members specifically. What's great about these types of funds is they are deferred payment plans. They're deferred mortgages. They work like our second mortgage products, meaning interest accrues a very small amount, but there's no payment due for 30 years or until the home is sold or refinanced. So the idea is we want to get someone as deserving and brilliant as Michelle into a home with that down payment assistance where you don't make a payment on it because the idea is your housing costs are stabilized, your income grows, and then you can make the payments when you want to, or heck, you can wait till 30 years is up. When the fund is when the funds are paid back, they go back into the same fund from which they came so we can help the next family member. So we do creative down payment assistance programs. We also offer a VISTA loan, an I-10 product that does not require a social security number, right? So that's alternate credit, creative things to meet the needs of our community. Finally, I'll mention we have what we call our halal loan. It is a loan that is geared toward the Muslim community that if they are devout members of said community and they cannot have interest associated with their loan, we've developed a mortgage product that actually meets their needs because there's an intermediary from Michigan that's the beneficiary. They pay the note. So that family pays what really feels like rent. And we've gone and worked with the imams to make sure that this meets those religious standards. So these are the creative things that banks don't have the ability to do that a CDFI like Homesite can do. The last thing I'll mention, because we've talked about for all of our family histories, that sense of belonging, that sense of ownership and community. We know that in the last Great Recession, a huge number of community members in the Black community lost wealth because they lost homes. But we don't want that to happen again with COVID being the culprit. So we'll be partnering with Urban League and Linda Taylor, who's a master at this work. Uh, Very soon, the next week or so, uh, we'll be launching an anti-foreclosure program. Uh, We're working with the Washington State um, Housing Commission. Washington Housing Finance Commission, and this will be uh, uh, federal dollars that will flow through the commission, and Homesite will be in partnership with those homeownership counselors and those agencies like Urban League to find those socially disadvantaged individuals and families. That's the federal sort of term that essentially says that if you were affected by COVID and you happen to be in a bad mortgage, a mortgage that was not right-sized for you or a predatory type of product, and now you are facing foreclosure, we have grants of up to $60,000 to take your home out of foreclosure so you do not lose your home. We also have flexibility to go above 60000 in certain instances. So this program has really been designed. It's about $11 million altogether. It's a pilot. There's probably a larger program coming. But we know a lot of families were affected by COVID in terms of income, health and safety. And a lot of folks are finding themselves very close to that sheriff sale that I talked about that nearly happened for my mother. This program will be designed to keep folks from losing their homes, and we're looking forward to partnering with Urban League and other homeownership counselors and officers and those agencies to meet the needs of the community so we don't see what happened back in 2008 and nine to the Black community nationally. 
we want to make sure here in Washington State that we don't have a repeat of that. So we're, we're really proud and anxious to get started on this program. Thank you for sharing these um, the things that y'all are working on, the services that you provide. And I've learned stuff today too, Daryl. I didn't know about these types of different loans and the whole idea of deferring. Uh, that's something I haven't even heard of. Um, yeah. And, you know, I used to actually live uh, at 42, uh, wow, it's been a while, 4219 South Othello, 4218, 4219, right above Homesite's office across the street from the the giant um, yeah, yeah. development that's happening. And so, you know, it was great. Like when, when I was in town in November and we had a civic commons meeting, we did it at the Homesite office. And I didn't realize it until I got there. I was like, wait. I lived here for like six years, like in the <laughs> South End, right on the Othello, like, you know, uh, light rail station. Like I was like, like yeah, so funny. And right next door is the, the Korean owned like teriyaki shop. That oh, I, the teriyaki is good. Like, my, <laughs> my second parents, they would always be like, are you eating enough? Are you, are you dating? Are you like, how's life? Are you stressed? I was like, no, I guess <laughs> I got Korean parents here. Like, it's pretty great. Um, that's awesome. No, I, so it's so it's so nice to to just see, um, not just nice to see, but hear about all the things that we are working on that are in play, that uh, the, the data that we want to share, that we want to, you know, I like this idea, you know, FUBU for us by us, right? And so this is we we control the data, we're going to control the narrative, right? We're not going to let other people bring in this deficit mindset and narrative to it. To it, uh, just all the you know the work that you all do around housing and. You know, I'm both like overjoyed by it, but also like brokenhearted by it because the lengths that we have to go to and that you all have to go through to do something that is so easy for other people to do, you know, the, the, the gymnastics you have to do, the, the way you have to contort yourselves to, to help, you know, your own community access housing or access the ability to stay where they are, access, you know, the ability to feed themselves. Those are all things that so many people take for granted, but. So, so it's weird, right? It's like I have this bittersweet, like, oh, this is amazing. Like these programs are great, and why are these programs necessary, right? Like, and that's the that's the the, the justice that we want. We want the, the the space where that isn't necessary. That extra work, that sheriff's you know intervention of like the the employer. Like, we don't need to have these extraordinary measures to help us gain access into well being, into generational wealth, into the, the the same space that a lot of people have already. And that's not to take away from others, right? That's not to, 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 to decrease the pie. It's really to like make a community, uh, you know, a nation, a state, a, a neighborhood that's viable, that's sustainable, that cares for each other, that knows each other's stories and that sees each other as fully human and knows that all the opportunities that we have, we want to share, you know, and I'm not talking about like living in a commune <laughs> together, right? It's just, but we can work within capitalism and create it, the, the policies and the procedures, but also the connections and the relationships to make this really powerful for everybody. And that's the path that we want to take and we want to think about, especially on today, Dr. King's you know, MLK Day. We want to think about that. We want to share this message. And so I'm going to ask all three of you to, if you shared any data or any programs, please send me like a link to them because we're going to put that in our description page so we can maybe create a little resource toolkit for folks. But, uh, you know, uh, before I close, I would love, you know, for y'all to just maybe like say a parting thing before we go. Uh, and we'll go, um, Andrea, Daryl, Michelle. 
I don't know why this is coming to mind right now, but it seems so appropriate. Um, I recently heard Janet Jackson's song Rhythm Nation the other day and and the words no struggle, no progress um, in that song really stands out to me um, right now more so than ever. You know, we as a black people, we've been in the struggle and there has been progress, but we desperately need to see much more progress to match the struggle that we've experienced as a black people. Um, so I'll, I'll leave, I'll, I'll leave us with that. Mm. That's great. I love that. You know, I, 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 I reflecting on MLK day, you know, someone wrote me an email today and I said, Hey, I can jump on a call with you. And, and her response was, Oh no, no, don't worry. You know, it's a holiday. It's, it's your day off. And, and I, I sort of don't really think of MLK Day as a day off. It's a day on, I think. Mm. I think it's a day of reflection and action. And and so I'm really thankful for this forum that that you provided for us today, Frank, to to be in 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 community with with all three of you and thinking about this work. And you're right, it shouldn't be this hard. Um, and I do always come back to, you know, it was stated, I think, earlier that that Native Americans and 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 black folk the descendants of slaves, you know, we, we help build the country. We help make the pie. And yet we haven't been invited to get a slice of the pie all the time. Right. So what we're saying here is we're not trying to take pie away from you. We're trying to make sure that everyone has equal access to the pie. And guess what? We can probably together make the dog one pie bigger. You know, mm. so it's, it's a day on and I, and I appreciate Definitely tastier. It. Oh, for sure. For sure. You have not had my grandmother's sweet potato pie recipe. You need to have it, right? So, mm. so that 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 is what it's all about to me, and and I, I appreciate the, the the time to be able to make this part of my day on. So, thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, at, at the end of the day, I'm number one grateful to be in space with the three of you. I learn so much every time. So, thank you for your genius and your brilliance, uh, and for sharing it with me um, today and every day. Uh, but, um, I also want us to remember that in this moment, we have Marsha Fudge as the HUD secretary and have an opportunity who knows the struggle, right? Represented Chicago, uh, and knows, um, knows what is necessary. The change is necessary. So while I know that she is there and willing, she needs to know that the pressure is also going to be there to meet the need of our community today. So um, we have localized issues and challenges and, and we'll do that. Uh, but the, the, we have a moment to, to change systems, uh, especially where housing is concerned, the focus of most of our conversation today uh, with Marsha Fudge as the HUD secretary. And I think that we have an opportunity to, uh, to work with her to, to change the history and the future of home ownership for black communities and marginalized communities here in Seattle and across the country. Hmm. Thank you. And with that, and with MLK day, I appreciate my guests. I appreciate your time. I appreciate your brilliance. I appreciate your uh, commitment and passion. Uh, And I'll honestly say, I, the thing that I appreciate maybe the most is also just the relationship and the, the humor and like just the, the connection. And I, I know Daryl, you and I have met recently and I want to continue to grow that relationship. Uh, Andrea and Michelle, I've known you for a little bit longer, but not even that long, right? Maybe a couple of years. And so I appreciate you all. Uh, and just, I think the word appreciation is the way I want to end uh, today. I appreciate the shoulders of the giants that we stand upon. 
Um, I appreciate my my ancestors here in the land that I'm from. Um, being rooted here is really powerful for me, um, really um, soul nourishing for me. Uh, and so, yeah, I just, and then being in a relationship with y'all is soul nourishing as well. And so enjoy uh, the rest of your day. Make it a day on, as Daryl said, don't make it a day off. And with that being said, I want to uh, ask our listeners, if you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe, uh, be it on Spotify, be it on Apple. And I once again, I want to thank Big Phony for the music. Uh, and as always, I want to say that something that we always want our guests and our audience to take away is that, you know, take care of each other, build bridges, and remember that we all belong here. Thank you. <laughs>